So, hi, Josh. Um, in your case, it was easy to find out what your first language was. It seems like was early Java. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, I was actually using it before the 1.0 release. Because of Ian Smith. Yeah, yeah. Ian was um, he was a grad student at Georgia Tech when I was an undergrad, and I I just finished like some C and a few other traditional languages, and I was going to dive into my first object-oriented language. And I said, "What do you think? I, should I look at uh, Smalltalk or Objective C, or I mean, uh, Smalltalk or C And he says, "No, no, no." That's that's old news. You should try this new Java thing we've been working on. And he was uh, doing his internships at Sun, mm -hmm. so he had access to early betas. So I think he taught the first Java class in a university, which I took. Oh. And uh, that was, gosh, that was 95, I want to mm -hmm. say, like spring of 95. Wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that was over 20 years ago. So, so what you did with Java then? So back then, uh, I mean, I was still learning to be a good programmer, um, but it was a really easy way of doing OO design and without a lot of the um, the pitfalls that are in C++. So the first, I think the first real project I built, I was also taking graphics at the time, and um, so I built a ray tracer in Java, which... Um, you know, was not considered wise at the time because Java was so much slower than native code then. Oh, but it worked. Like it like the code just compiled and worked. It was very clean compared to equivalent C. It was with, nice. with JDK one zero? Yeah. It might have been one one no. I'm trying to think. No, I don't think Swing was out yet. I yeah, I think it was one oh. But uh, Java two D was out, or what do you use then? That was just straight uh, image buffer stuff. It worked because oh. each pixel was separate. Yeah, so that was AWT. So, so you are a hardcore programmer, right? <laughs> um, you know, I'm. I would consider myself a good programmer, but I'm not a great programmer. And I know this because I worked with some really great programmers at Sun, like people who did operating system stuff or they wrote compilers. There was, there was amazing talent at Sun. Okay, so why why they were great? So you say they were great programmers. So, so what's the deal? Who is a great Sun, programmer? Sun had managed to collect just really talented engineers over the years, um, back from their workstation days. And when Java came out, and uh, James, you know, James Gosling and his crew built it, and they started marketing it. Um, a lot of the engineers wanted to switch to Java because they'd been writing C and C++, and um, just in terms of developer productivity, it was a lot better. Oh, that's interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, there were some people who were against it because they, they didn't like the idea of virtual machines, and mm -hmm. they're like, it's always going to be slower, and... You know, there. I mean, it's still. I suppose, at least until the, the end of my time at Sun, uh, there was still that trade-off of speed versus safety. Um, and I think in the end, Java won because it got faster, but C++ didn't get very much safer. <laughs> safer. Yeah. So, um, I think C++ is being used less for new projects than it used to be. Yeah. At the end, um, um, people told me. That Java is just a system language is way too fast, so um, it's just just okay, you know, to go with Groovy and Scala, even if it's slow, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> this this was actually interesting. Yeah, and uh, was it Applet what you built, or you spent more time on bare metal? Was it inside a J frame, I guess? No, no frame, AVT frame, I think. No J frame. This was before Swing, right? Your rate tracer. Right. Initially, initially it was um, AWT, but essentially I was just writing to an array of memory okay and then i would turn that into an image every second and then draw it up to the screen okay because ray tracing a pixel i mean i was running this on like a 66 megahertz 46 something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. um ray tracing even a single pixel with just a couple spheres uh took way longer than redrawing to the screen okay so but so, it was fun okay so what was your second project then so I'm really curious now. Um, I'm trying to remember. 
let's see, the second, I mean, I'm sure I wrote lots of things, and, you know, JSPs were just starting, no, not JSP, servlets were just starting to be. I do remember building a web server. Um, well, it wasn't really a web server. It was using the servlet engine like Tomcat, and then, but all of the HTML was generated on the fly from Java code, which was a bad idea. You should never put your markup in your source code, but I'm sure I did that a few times. Um, probably the coolest other thing I did in college beyond the, the UI toolkit stuff was it was an early, I'd read Snow Crash. Uh, I'd read several cyberpunk novels, but then I read Snow Crash in Metaverse, college. right? Yeah, with the Metaverse. And it had this really unique idea of there were people who had the high-end headsets and had this very detailed worldview. Um, high, super high resolution, super low latency, super low latency. But then people would come in like they dial in from, I guess, the equivalent of a payphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is funny that we have sci-fi that didn't have the idea of cell phones. But um, yeah, people came in through a payphone, and their their avatars were lower resolution, or maybe it was just a video capture. Um, but the metaverse worked with it. It had this idea of scalability between different experiences. So I built a very early prototype of there's a virtual world with a 3D view and a 2D view. And I'm sure, again, this was right after I'd taken graphics. So uh, I built, uh, this is probably swing level graphics. I built a 3D interface and a 2D overhead interface. And it sounds far more elaborate than it was. I mean, it was literally like five polygons. You were like this little penguin guy going through a grid plane um, or an overhead of a penguin's arrow head walking around a a 2D view. But um, you could have two windows open, and they could interact with each other. They could walk around and stuff. Um, And, you know, I haven't thought about that in ages, but I realized that we've just built that with Mozilla with hubs where we have this idea of a virtual space that works in 2D or 3D, works on desktop or phone or in a full VR headset. And that they, the experience scales to whatever device you have available at the time. There was huh. a project at Sun, and I forgot actually the name. There were two projects. Uh, one was like a 3D spaces project, and the other one was, um, I actually built some extensions for that. And the the other one was built upon the first, and this was the idea was like three D space world for commercial use and for education. Remember oh, that? Was that um, Project Wonderland? No, yeah, Project yeah, Looking yeah. Glass, maybe or no, maybe Wonderland. both. You're right. This was a Wonderland. It was like the three D space experience where you can walk around and and touch stuff. Right. Yeah. I think Looking Glass might have been like a three D window manager. Exactly. So the and then they sort of stuck them together because I think you could bring like Open Office or a web browser into the 3D shared space. This was the Wonderland project, exactly. This was yeah. like the shared space. And uh, on that note, there was a Second Life. You remember that? Mm-hmm. I do remember Second Life at the time. Um, there's the in- actually a bunch of Second Life uh, users on my team now. Yeah, this <laughs> is what, <laughs> what I guess. <laughs> but the interesting story of Second Life was the scalability. So, like, you know, the, the different worlds were, or the islands, they were actually servers. So if you move from one world to another, it took some time, and this was the time to transfer your context between servers. So I thought this was a really interesting idea, how to, how to, you know, map scalability to user experience. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of those ideas are coming back again. It's, it's funny... You know, people have been trying to create VR at, at least since the late 60s. And every 10 years it seems to come out and then it dies just because the technology wasn't ready. And I feel like this time it's really working. You know, smartphones have made all the components cheap enough that we can build VR devices that are portable, lightweight, long enough battery, powerful enough graphics just by riding the, smart wave, the smartphone wave. And the internet's good enough now that you know we can have all these social experiences. So I think it's real this time. Yeah, I think so. So you, you um, your your second project was the three D and two D or whatever. What interests <laughs> me, what was actually the experience at Sun? So in one point of time, you worked for Sun, right? 
Yeah, I spent five years there. Sun was sort of my dream job. I'd been... Um, so after I graduated, I graduated in 97 and immediately went out to Silicon Valley and was just immersed in startup culture. And I worked at a couple startups. Um, and then the dot-com bust happened and, you know, I had worthless stock. So, you know, I did what every, I moved back to Atlanta and I did what everybody in Atlanta did, which was you work for either like Coke or, or uh, Turner. I ended up working for um, Home Depot because their, their world headquarters was there and working for Verizon, you know, just big enterprise internal stuff. And I was so bored. I started writing these blogs, just doing fun things with, with graphics and swing. And that eventually led to a book with O'Reilly, and that led to getting a, an offer to join the swing team at Sun in back in California. So I jumped at the chance, and I think I was on the swing team for about two years. Uh, the first year, I was just working in the windows look and feel, like getting all those little details right and really learning how swing worked internally, uh, much more than I did when I was writing the book. And Swing was a really incredible, um, like the architecture was really elegant. Um, it certainly had limitations, but it, I mean, the fact that people are still write, be able to write new productive applications after 20 years, that's a long time for a UI toolkit to be useful. Yeah. And Swing, IntelliJ, Swing was really well designed. And IntelliJ and WebStorms are still based on Swing, right? I believe so, yeah. And I, I use WebStorm every day. Yeah. I mean, that's my go-to editor. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, Swing Swing was a really good team. And the people on the Swing team were just really nice. I, I learned a lot from them. They're great guys. Mm -hmm. So Amy Fowler, I think, and... Um, and Jeff Dinkins. Uh, who else was on that team? Yeah, quite a few. Um, and then when I moved to Oregon, because I got married, um, I switched teams to the NetBeans team to work on the GUI builder. So it's still Swing related, but it was tools for Swing rather than the toolkit itself. But you also work on the Windows look and feel, right? Yeah, my first year was the Windows look and feel. So what's what's uh, what interests me from the te technological perspective is... Uh, you try to do everything pixel perfect. So what interests me, in one point of time, the Swing started to use native controls, right? It didn't exactly use native controls. Uh, what happened was with the switch from when X, XP, so Windows XP, you know, for you youngins, Windows XP was like the longest used version of Windows. It's mm -hmm. still being used some places. But it was the major, major version of Windows for at least 10 years. And somewhere along, like XP2, I think, like the Service Pack 2, they introduced an official theming API. Um, before then, people had written, like, hacks that could change the look of all the widgets, and it didn't work terribly well. And so they, they introduced this theming API, and you could have official themes. And the, the API was documented, and you could actually get access to all of the bitmaps. So what we did was, we were still using Swing controls, but it was a look and feel that would actually talk to the operating system and get all those bitmaps and do our best to draw the Swing controls exactly the same textures, the same fonts, the exact same metrics, you know, the, 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 the borders and the, the, what's the word, padding, the padding around all the buttons. Uh, so we did our best to make it look absolutely native. <laughs> Whether that was the right thing to do, I don't know. Because eventually the world moved to the web, and people, it turns out people didn't care that stuff looked native anymore. But at the time, we were very proud of the, of the work that we did. Now it was really important. In all projects, uh, there was also you know, a swing has to look native and so forth. So it was a big deal back then. Yeah. The hardest thing was actually not the text controls or the buttons. It was the progress bar. Because the progress bar had this subtle little animation in it that was very difficult to replicate. Okay. And um, then you worked for NetBeans. You you worked on the Matisse GUI builder. Yeah, I worked on the fixing bugs in the GUI builder, adding the menu builder to that, and we were starting to work on an app framework. So I added the app framework support where you could do things like <coughs> you could switch which language you were 
writing in. I don't mean programming language, but actual human language. So you could see, like, show me my whole GUI in English, and now I'll switch it to German, and I can see, oh, these are the ones I'm missing, and I can type those in. Um, and there was an action framework. So you could register through your whole app. You could have these are the 40 actions with their icons and the code they call, and then wire it up to, uh, to your GUI. It was the yeah, uh, it's Swing fr- cool. uh, JSR two nine six or something like it was like the Swing application something like framework. that. Yeah, you might remember better than I do. <laughs> yeah, this was Swing application framework on data binding frame. There were like two APIs and one. Yeah, was I don't know if those ever were finalized. They it seemed like they were in draft for a long time. Yeah, then were stopped by the um, on hold. Also, the one was uh, latest two nine six. I think it was. And um, yeah, this was actually an interesting story. This was a great API. I actually d- don't remember the reasons why they they uh, were stopped. I don't remember the official reasons, but the unofficial was just smartphones were starting to take off. The world was changing. A lot of the engineers um, moved to work on Android at Google or um, work on web technology. And then Swing itself was kind of paused and we started working on JavaFX as a way to compete with Flash. So it just became like everybody moved on to other stuff and so there wasn't really anyone left to work on core Swing things anymore. It was indeed JSR296 and the name is Swing Application Framework and it was withdrawn in 2011. Yeah, that which was after I left but it was basically dead before then. Okay. And um, you liked to work at Sun still? You enjoyed the five Um, years or? My five years was really fun. I met some great people. Almost everybody I worked with went on to do wonderful things at other companies. Um, JavaFX was super fun. I got to go to South by Southwest. I helped with the launch of JavaFX where a bunch of us got together and we built out this website in a month that had like 16 or 20 demos showing all the APIs. Also the Tesla demo, you remember this? Oh yeah, the Tesla demo. There was a, a, a there was a, the very first Tesla demo. It was like the um, Lotus, you know, Lotus Elise car. And this yeah. was like a car configurator for Tesla based on JavaFX. Yeah. Boy, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and how how uh, did, you remember how JavaFX actually started? There was like form follows function F three project first. Yeah, right? that was um, Chris Oliver exactly. had built this sort of language on top of a scene graph library. And at the time, we were looking at overhauling how graphics were done internally, both for Swing and for other stuff. As I said, this was a time of transition in the industry where smartphones were taking off and GPUs were starting to become affordable. You know, we could anticipate that one day every computer will have a GPU. And so we were looking at, well, how do we, how do we overhaul the graphics stack to use shaders, to use textures? You know, how do we either build new stuff for the new world or bring the old stuff up? So yeah, it was a time of big transition and change. The way people bought software was changing. My last year at Sun, I worked on the Java store, uh-huh. which was a, a desktop store for desktop Java applications. And Bef- before within, Apple store? Yeah, this was before the Mac store. And we, um, I think in about a year, our little small team of people, including like James Gosling had this idea and he got a bunch of us together and we built it. And we were able to do our first sale in less than a year, which by sun standards, going from product to revenue in a, in a year, it was light speed. Um, so we did do our first sale, and then I think a month later, Oracle bought us and decided they didn't want to be in that, that market, so they canceled the, the desktop store project. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. It was fun. And then you left Sun. Then I left Sun, yeah. The last day... I was kind of tired of desktop at the time, and mobile was really taking off. So I'd been interviewing, and my last day at Sun was the last day that before Oracle took over. Oh, <laughs> and then I joined. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was the very last day, and I've been kind of moving away from it, pure engineering, more into developer advocacy, developer evangelism. So I joined Palm at that time to work on WebOS. 
-hmm. And at the time, I had very little JavaScript experience, but I knew UI very well, and I'd gotten into mobile. So that was the beginning of me um, learning more JavaScript and uh, also helping. It turned out there was actually a fair amount of Java in WebOS. Uh, most of the services were built in Java and oh. a lot of the tools. So the, you had, um, was Java running on the device? It was. Um, it was basically J2ME, mm -hmm. but, well, no, it was closer to Java SE, but with the specs of J2ME, it was a very strange version of Java. I'm not sure where they got it from, but all of the basic services like email and syncing your calendars and your contacts, that was all in Java. Oh. Um, slowly, they uh, start when Node.js took off, they started moving more of that into JavaScript because Node let them do high-performance um, JavaScript, uh, or at least high-performance, the CPU-bound processes they still kept in Java, but anything that was I/O-bound, they moved to to Node.js because it, it was really good for I/O-bound mm -hmm. uh, computation. But WebOS was actually great operating system, I think, and um, the hardware mm -hmm. is also nice. So what's 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 always ask me why HP canceled that? You know that? Um, you know, I've thought about this many times because it was a blow to all of us. Um, I think. So HP bought us, at the time HP bought us, and I'd only been there maybe six months when mm -hmm. HP took over. Uh, they had a different CEO, and they were facing this world of, we make commodity computers that run someone else's operating system, which is Windows. Mm -hmm. um, and even though they were the leader, probably the leading Windows PC maker, uh, at least in the US, uh, it was still kind of a low margin business. It was getting lower. And so they said, well, the mobile world is shaping up to be the same thing, where they could build an Android phone, but they would, it would become a commodity business, and Google would make all the money. So they decided, we need to have our own phone with our own operating system and be more like Apple. So they bought WebOS. And I think that was a great vision. Unfortunately, then the CEO was kicked out, and they brought in a different guy who didn't really come from a consumer product background at all. He came, uh, I think he wanted to turn HP into like IBM, you know, big enterprise computing. And so he canceled WebOS and canceled, or talked about canceling or selling off the PC division completely. Canceled WebOS and did it in a way that it couldn't be reversed. Um, not only did they fire the hardware team, but they shut down the supply chain. And when you build hardware, supply chain takes a year or two to crank up. So if you turn it off, you have to pay all this money to get out of contracts, and you can't easily build a new supply chain again. You know, it takes, again, a couple years. So at that point, you know, WebOS still existed, and it was interesting code, but without having shipping products, it was basically dead. And they sold it off to, um, I think they, s they tried to spin it out for a while, and then I think it eventually was sold to LG. Oh. who uses it for uh, smart TVs. But this was a yeah. pity because I think it was like everybody's darling. So everybody's really... Liked. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, everyone loved it. Um, but, you know, sort of like what happened with uh, when Oracle took over Sun, Yeah. there's still good ideas and there's still good people. And when there's a big change, those people then spread out into the industry and they take their ideas and contacts with them. And so, you know, when Sun kind of imploded, and to be fair, Sun was going down long before Oracle bought them. Yeah. Um, lots of talented people went to other companies in the industry and have done great things. Uh, if you look at, like, the graphics and UI people at, on the Android team, uh, at least half of them came from Sun. Mm -hmm. The same, uh, a lot of great people went to Apple. When, uh, when HP shut down WebOS, a lot of great people went to Nokia, went to Google, went to create mobile app startups. And all of those ideas and talent have worked their way into other products. So if you look at a modern Android or iOS device, there's a lot of WebOS still in there. Mm -hmm. A lot of apps built in web technology, uh, more and more using card metaphors, the way they handle notifications with lots of gestures and swipes. 
that was all pioneered by WebOS, but it's now diffused into the overall ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So even though it was bad for HP, and I feel very sad for the WebOS users, including myself, um, it was uh, those ideas still percolated and are, are being used everywhere. So. Uh, now s- yes. s- switch topics because I remember something. You built one time a widget system. I tried that, and you called that Awesome Box Two Thousand or something like this. You remember that? <laughs> oh yeah, that was sort of that was a fun side project I did when I was at Sun, uh, when widgets were really taking off, um, and it turned out they were a flash in the pan. Eventually, you know, all this stuff was going to move into apps on on mobile phones. Yeah. but but it was fun. I really wanted to push what we could do with Swing and JavaFX. Um, and I like I still like the idea of having little apps that are very focused on one thing. And I think we might get there like you sort of have that on Android with their dashboard widgets, though I don't know if they still support those. I ha- mm-hmm. I haven't used Android regularly in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um but when we finally get AR headsets, like mm-hmm. augmented reality headsets that are just built into your glasses, I think we'll have widgets again where we have things that just sort of live in your periphery and they pop up when needed to give you important information and then they disappear again. So the, the, the awesome box thing was like a, a small app installed in in a kind of desktop, right? Yeah, and it had this big pane that would kind of, it was like a sidebar and yeah. then... You click the button, and this pane would slide out, and it would show you all of your mini apps, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I just remember the name because it was uh, interesting. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was. Oh, I remember now. The Wii had just been announced, and I said, you know, if a kid was going to design their own co- game console, what would they name it? Like a ten-year-old would name it the Awesome Box Five Thousand. Yeah, something like this, and it's okay. It was just it, it came out of you know some friends and I were just talking yak, and one evening we came up with this name, and it just stuck. <laughs> okay, sweet. okay, now we clarified this. Now I know know what it was, and I use it actually on uh, my desktop machine, and I created a widget like a home automation widget because I hacked a oh, cool. heating, con- heating control and use it to display things. So it was actually pretty useful. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And um, so, but you also spent some time at Nokia, right? I did. Um, so my last, I left Palm. They canceled everything, and I continued like helping wind down our developer program and help our developers port their apps to other platforms. Um, but m- my wife and I just had a baby, and I knew I couldn't travel like that with a young kid. So I moved to Nokia to do research for a couple years, and I got to play with. Uh, Internet of Things stuff, a little bit of VR. Um, it Finland? Was, was it in Finland? Um, I was in the mountain, not Mountain View, uh, Sunnyvale office. Oh, Sunnyvale, okay. Um, yeah, I worked with a lot of people from Finland. Sadly, I never got a chance to go to the, the headquarters. Mm-hmm. It just never worked out timing-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Nokia, again, there were a lot of great people there. And the the point of our team was to... Research the future, and so if like if someone from a product team came and said, we want to build a smart toaster, what's it going to cost? Who, who do we get the components from? Our team could answer those sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of research I did was on IoT and wearables, trying to figure out, is there money there? Um, what products, what kinds of products are people really going to want? Um, and if we decide to build, like say, a smartwatch, what components are we going to need? Who do we buy stuff from? So uh, we prototyped a lot of things and wrote a lot of reports. Uh, unfortunately, almost nothing that we did ever turned into a product. Um, the The closest I got was some work I did on Imagine, a point-and-shoot camera, but that had Android built into it. Mm-hmm. So you could have apps, but there are camera apps built into your camera, and so it felt like a traditional camera experience, but it could magically do additional things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got really close to... I did initial prototype work on that, on the UI and some of the Bluetooth LE things, and handed it off to another product team, and they almost... I think they were a week away from announcing it when the Microsoft deal closed, and they ended up selling off that chunk of the company. Oh, 
to I forget who bought that part. It part went to Microsoft, and then I think this got rolled up in the mapping division, and that was sold to some car makers. So it got lost in the shuffle and and never shipped as a product. Oh. So after three years, and once my son was older, I, I was like, I want to build something that ships again. I'm tired of <laughs> just doing research. So I left Nokia after another round of, of reorgs and joined a startup. Okay. And, and, and they shipped something? Yeah, they, they actually um, they were and still are a 100-person uh, startup that does a, pro, a service, really. It's called PubNub. They produce what's um, they call it a real time. Basically, it's sort of like a CDN, but mm -hmm. for real time data. Mm -hmm. So much like if you need your images and your video to be fast on the internet, you hire a CDN to host that for you. Mm -hmm. Well, they hosted the equivalent of WebSocket, so you could broadcast updates, you could do implement chat systems, anything where you needed real time communication. They were getting into IoT. Um, and do it at massive scale. So they're, something they're, like MQTT, something like this, right? Yeah, but if you wanted to do like one person pushes a button and then that message goes to a million people yeah. in real time, you know, high scale stuff. I think they do, now they're up to like two trillion messages a month, something insane. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked in their developer relations. I, I was head of DevRel there and... We worked on um, SDKs for a bunch of different platforms and um, just pushing the idea of the service. And then later they added um, blocks, which was like uh, functions on demand. So you could write code that would live in the edge of the network oh. and do things like uh, one person types a message into the chat. Before the chat message makes it to the other user, it goes to this function, which can then call out to like filter words or call to an IBM service to translate one language to another or other interesting things, you know, real-time filtering in the network. Mm -hmm. So that was that was fun, but, you know, life in startups is volatile, yeah. and the company ended up pivoting again to more enterprise-y stuff, and our team was liquidated. Okay. So, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's life in this career. And finally, you are in Mozilla, <laughs> right? Yeah, Mozilla is another company I've always wanted to work for, and some of my colleagues from Nokia and from Sun uh, ended up at Mozilla. So I joined, it was about a year ago. After PubNub? Uh, I joined after PubNub, yeah. I had some downtime um, where I just did contract work and, and played with my son for the summer, and then I joined Mozilla, yeah, I guess it was August of last year, so a year ago. Uh, again, their um, developer relations team, but this time focusing on mixed reality, so virtual reality and augmented reality and stuff that's in between. And this is how I find you again, because um, <laughs> yeah, because I do lots of uh, web standards right now. Uh, oh I yeah, do lots, lots of backend Java stuff, and clients ask me now what you should do in the front end. And there are lots of crazy frameworks, and you don't need usually a lot of framework just to create a simple app. So, yeah. um, so I started with web standards, and of course, if you do lots of web standards and web APIs, you will end up looking at MDN, Mozilla Devel Developer Network, and the APIs, which are crucial, yep. which are right now almost like a standard uh, part of of the. It's, it's, for me, it's almost like a JCP, JSR. So if I have a question, I go to MDN, I get the standard answer. Yep. And uh, yep. it's a very similar experience for me. Or this, Yeah, uh, it's, it's even more so. Originally, MDN stood for Mozilla Developer Network, but it has now become an... A, like, Mozilla still provides a lot of the sponsorship, but it's kind of an independent thing. It's just called MDN, and Google and Microsoft contribute to it as well. So it really is the place for documenting web standards. Exactly. And if I if I can make it so that when you like if you just type into Google the name of like a javascript function or an html element um, usually MDN comes up first. No. Sometimes no, 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 it's still no. W3C schools. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like I want to get rid of W3C yeah, exactly. schools. It should be so MDN. I, I always searching like you know MDN and then whatever reduce array. So then I find it. So otherwise I get to know the W3 schools, whatever it is, with, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so we, we're making a very conscious effort. We're staffing up the MDN team, um, um, overhauling a lot of the pages, working on our Google ranking. So it's getting better. Yeah. And, and we, we just started, um, you'll notice on some pages, there's uh, programmatic information, like a table of, say, which browser supports this. Yeah. Or which standard was which version of the standard was is introduced. We're starting to expose that data as an actual API so that it can be embedded into IDEs or other tools. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really exciting. That yeah, the MDM team does does great work. Yeah, the, you can export the information in JSON format and uh, do something with it. So it's actually interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really cool. And uh, yeah, so then I look, you know, and custom elements, web components, and then I w- I subscribe to the Mozilla Developer Network, and then I found Josh Barinacci. It's like, oh, Josh, <laughs> uh, I know him from somewhere, and it's like, yeah, this is the Josh, the you know, swing son Josh, and uh, then I've wanted to talk with you about, you know, how how you get there. But for me, what's interesting is I like JavaScript more and more, and. For unknown reasons, the longer we wait, the more JavaScript becomes really like Java. So it is. It does. It really is becoming more like Java. It's kind of funny. And yeah, really funny. And 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 for me, for instance, it's very easy to explain to Java developers JavaScript concepts using you know the the Java classes like for instance service workers. Like uh, if you try to explain you know to someone who doesn't know Java, it is uh, really hard. But for Java, it's like look, it's like something like an executor service or a thread. And you can only yeah. communicate, you know, with messages, and it has access to a hash map with request response called cache storage. And it's so, okay, that's easy, done. Yep. And yep. Um, and uh, what happens right now? What's interesting is if I show Java developers the web standards thing, they they really like it. They say, okay, this is a very similar to Swing back then. So we have now, you know, grid layout, which was kind of you know grid back layout, a little bit easier, but uh, similar. Okay. And you can, you know, have similar architecture, and 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 they like it. But uh, before web standards, it was mission impossible. There were fifty thousand oh, frameworks. Every yeah. framework was completely different. It was just crazy. Yeah, there is JavaScript because it didn't really have batteries included. The way you know, one one of the geniuses of Java was not just the language itself, but it had the standard library. And, and this is still a problem with C++. Yep. Like, if you say, how do I do a string in C++? You know, say you, you're not a C++ developer, you come from somewhere else, and you're like, I just need a string. Well, <laughs> there isn't really a standard. There, because of the history of C++, there isn't a standard string class. There's many different ways of doing it. But in Java, from day one, it's like, this is how you do strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it meant that when they started improving like internationalization and, and Unicode support, the new things went into string, mm-hmm. and everybody takes advantage. Having that one way of doing certain common things was huge. Mm-hmm. JavaScript does have a string class, but it didn't have a standard way of doing inheritance. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has the mechanism built in for predictable yeah. inheritance, but it didn't say like, okay, if this thing's going to inherit this thing, this is the way you should do it. So everybody had their own way of extending classes. Everybody had their own way of handling events, and it just kind of became a mess. And then a lot of them, a lot of the frameworks also had to deal with just browser differences. And so, in the mid two thousands, nobody was going to write straight JavaScript. You always were writing jQuery yeah. because jQuery handled all of the browser differences and gave you a nicer API. And most these days, you don't really need jQuery anymore. Not you know, at all. It served, its, it served its purpose for a good 10 years, but I use, unless I'm building a big application where I need, you know, panels and buttons and, you know, I need an app framework, I just do straight JavaScript. Yeah, I, I actually, and we and do straight everywhere. JavaScript in big applications because with, let's say, jQuery, so we have document query selector is uh, almost as powerful as jQuery, like for DOM. Oh, yeah. DOM searching. And faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much faster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, be, be 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 careful with with fast because we get in a lot of uh, hints that we should use document get element by ID. <laughs> it's the fastest. Well, yeah, it does depend on what your queries are. It is a one. I, mic- I tend to. It's one what, microsecond what, faster, you know. 
Right. <laughs> what What's funny is I, I end up recreating jQuery by just having creating a, a function called dollar sign. Yeah. Yeah. And all it does is call document query selector, but yeah. it means my code can be, especially with arrow. Now that we have arrow functions, uh, yeah. what, what we would call like anonymous inner classes or mm -hmm. anonymous interface implementations in the Java world. Um, yeah. We finally, you know, JavaScript had this all along, but it didn't have the nice syntax. Mm -hmm. It's funny how Java and JavaScript have kind of each moved towards each other. Like modern Java with the, the Lambda work that Brian Getz has been doing mm -hmm. feels as fluid and, and productive as JavaScript. And JavaScript is getting more of the rigorous types and um, you kind of put it together yourself by adding linters and things, but mm -hmm. it's getting more strongly typed the way that Java is. Mm -hmm. I think maybe just over time, all languages kind of, they whatever their thing is and whatever they're missing, they, they fill in the things they were missing and they kind of grow towards each other. Yeah. And uh, what's what's also fun is, you know, in, um, well, I would say five five years ago, it's like a JavaScript is a beautiful and lightweight functional language. And, and the truth is everyone wanted to have something like Java in JavaScript. Yep. And now we have it. And, and now if you <laughs> take a look, for instance, that web component, it looks like, you know, class something extends HTML element. And, uh, and uh, okay, the constructor is a bit different, but it really is like Java. It's comp yeah. The, you know, the aesthetics are like Java. It's not, a, it was a complete different experience to ES5, where you use lots of functions and you always call the IFEs and stuff like that. So now it's just, you know, modern Java or C-sharp like syntax. Yep. And we finally have modules working everywhere, which gives us something like Java packages. You yeah, know, exactly. For Java developers, it's just important <laughs> package and, and, and not yep. OSGI, right? So this is like, exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, so um, what um, I'm also working a lot is our web components and custom elements, which are actually mm -hmm. great. And you working on something else. Um, you are AR VR expert, right? Yes. So for I'm the, the Java developers, that team. what's the difference between AR and VR? <laughs> um, in the abstract, uh, VR virtual reality is where you are completely immersed. There's a screen which covers your head, probably headphones that cover your ears. You're in a completely artificial world. Pure AR, augmented reality, is where you have a live view of the world, either through a camera or literally through glasses mm -hmm. where light's coming in, and then something digital is overlaid on top of the world but is still interacting. So it's not just a heads-up display, but it's a heads-up display that's aware of what you're looking at and can, you know, in the simplest, can say point in which direction is north because it's aware of the Earth's magnetic field. Or it does computer vision, and it could say you, you know, do green screen effects where something you're looking at gets replaced with something else. Um, in reality, those are the two platonic ideals. Reality is always some mixture of the two. So we call it mixed reality, and we think of it as just a spectrum. And where you are in the spectrum depends entirely on what you're doing, but you should be able to use the same tools, the same APIs to do those things. Okay, so we have uh, so there's just AR, VR, MR, and nothing else, right? So there are the well, what we've coined is XR uh, for okay. lack of anything else. We still call it mixed reality, but XR is this new spec. Web XR is a spec which will encompass VR and AR and provide all the browser hooks so that when you write code, it will work in VR, it'll work in AR, it'll work in any brand of headset. And it will still respect user privacy. So, you know, people love the idea of AR in a browser, and then we're like, wait, we're going to give webcam access not only to your face, but to everything around you to some random web page that might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, privacy and security is a big part of this. Mm -hmm. And XR the is going to is, be the spec, right? Yes. So, today we have WebVR, which essentially exposes. VR headsets, and then uh, the controllers are exposed uh, just like game controllers would be. Um, and that's supported in a couple of browsers, including ours. 
long term is WebXR, which supersedes VR, adds the AR components, and focuses on security and being a true web standard. Uh, we were initially a working group. Now we have uh, an actual W3C sanctioned draft, and it's going through the whole standards process. Uh, the good news is there are people from Mozilla, Google, Microsoft, Apple, like every browser maker is involved in this, and so it will eventually be everywhere. So it's it's really exciting to be at the beginning of a, a new technology, even though it's not really new, but it's new this time, um, and to be able to shape it. You know, the web is there from day one, uh, security and privacy we're thinking about from day one. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, every couple months, like, there's new hardware out, there's new incredible ideas that developers come up with. It's, uh, it's exciting. And uh, is, you remember VRML? I do, I do. And some of the people who created that are still around working on those uh, modern versions of it. We now have something called GLTF. Mm -hmm. uh, VRML is definitely a better name for it, but... Um, it's essentially a transmission format for 3D graphics, which mm -hmm. has now become a standard and is being used everywhere. So every, no matter what game engine you're using, it can read GLTFs. No matter what 3D modeler you're using, it can produce GLTFs. It's like the JPEG for 3D. But and, Apple released uh, something while, similar, right? They did, and that's a case where Apple went out on their own, uh, but we also haven't seen much adoption for it. Okay. So I, I'm I'm hoping that they will come around and support GLTF as well. Okay. What's the standard from Apple? What's what's the uh, no standard? What's the technology from Apple? Oh, we know I'm trying to remember. It was a, basically a 3D modeling which is zipped API exactly. from Pixar, like one of Pixar's 3D tools, and which is then zipped up. The exactly. problem is, it's really a format that's meant for editing, not a format that's meant for publishing. Okay. Much like. You can think of it as like in the 2D world, you don't edit your JPEGs. You're editing either raw files from your camera or your Photoshop format files in Photoshop. You know, you do all your editing work, and then what you produce at the end is your final JPEG. Mm -hmm. Well, GLTF is the final output that you're using for production. Mm -hmm. um, what they chose to use is really an editing format, not a publishing format. Okay. Um, I don't know why, you know. Apple's quiet about those things, but I hope that they will come around and work with us on GLTF. Mm -hmm. um, different question regarding uh, the Mozilla browser. Probably you know the answer. So uh, it was completely rewritten, I would say, a few months ago, right? And uh, so now the um, Mozilla browser is a really fast engine inside. Well, my impression is like um, the Mozilla is uh, lagging a bit behind the standards. And the reason for that, I think, was the refactoring project, right? So now you are catching up with all the standards. Is it the right impression? Um, no. So we didn't rewrite the browser from scratch. What no, we've just been the engine. Yeah. Is even the engine, we haven't been rewriting from scratch. We've been replacing parts of it one at a time mm -hmm. while still keeping it running. Uh, okay. We had this other research project called Servo. Mm -hmm. which the idea was if we use a safe language like Rust mm -hmm. um, and built a browser from scratch for the new world of you have GPUs everywhere and lots of memory, how would we do it? And Servo is truly a we're building a brand new browser from scratch, mm -hmm. but it was an experiment. And what we've done is some of those experiments turned out to be really good, and we're taking pieces of Servo one by one, pulling okay. them into... Firefox, but still keeping, you know, it's still Gecko. It's just like we took out the CSS selector engine and brought in a new one. We took out the CSS styling engine and brought in a new one, one okay. at a time. Um, in terms of web standards, um, it's always a race between the browser vendors. You know, sometimes, you know, for a while, Google will be ahead, for a while, we'll be ahead, and it, you know, they'll be ahead in one area, we'll be ahead in another. Right now, we're definitely ahead in, in supporting the VR technologies. Mm -hmm. And um, we were ahead in, I'm trying to remember what was the other one I was thinking of recently. I forget. <laughs> but um, for the most part, the browser makers are actually working together very well. And so you'll see something like CSS Grid. CSS Grid went from one experimental version to basically all browsers supporting it fully in about a year. Mm -hmm. And compared to the past, that is light speed. Yeah, of course. 
This was like and incredible. Yeah. It's fantastic. You know, like Flexbox took three or four years to reach that same level of standardization and, and deployment that that grid did. So I think in general, it's getting better where you don't need to worry. You don't care about which browser you're using based on its standard support. You're going to care which browser you're using based on its features or how it works with privacy or the user experience. Um, the standards are standards. It should be this boring thing that no one has to care about. And I think we're getting to that world. Yeah, perfect. So now back to VR where um, Mozilla is leading. So, um, so I'm a Java developer, JavaScript developer. Can I try mm -hmm. it right now, some VR? And how to do that? Yes. So if you have a VR headset um, attached to your desktop or laptop computer, then you can install the current version of Firefox, and it will work. If you go to a web page that has some VR content, there'll be a button that says Enter VR. Push the buttons, put on your headset, and it works. What Which I think is more interesting. Which headsets are supported right now, like Oculus Go or? Oculus Go, HTC Vive, the Windows Mixed Reality headsets. There's like three or four of those. Um, in general, Apple doesn't have as good support on the Mac. Mm -hmm. um, so I think only the HTC Vive, maybe the Vive Pro. But the Oculus Go is independent from the desktop. So, I mean. Right, so I'm talking about tethered headsets. Okay. Now, when we talk, go to um, standalone, the situation is very different. And we just released Firefox Reality, which is um, a browser designed from the ground up for VR, meaning mm -hmm. it's not a 2D browser that lets you then view VR, go into VR mode. It's a browser you use while you were in VR, which also supports immersive content. Ah. We started with the Android version of Firefox, and then completely rewrote the UI, did a lot of work on the graphics stack. And so now, if you, if you have an Oculus Go, which is a standalone, uh, essentially it's the guts of like a year or two-year-old high-end smartphone um, with all the optics and everything. So it's a VR headset. You don't have to, other than charging, you don't have to plug it into a laptop. It works entirely on its own. It has its own app store. And now it has its own version of Firefox. And so you can browse the 2D web within VR. And you can view 3D movies. You can play 3D games, immersive VR games, right from within Firefox reality. So what you're saying is that there is in the store of Oculus a version of Firefox VR. Yep. The, the Oculus Go store, we should clarify. Because there's also the Oculus store for PC, which is for the Oculus Rift. Okay. Their naming can be confusing sometimes. The same with um, Google. So they have Google Daydream refers both to their standalone Daydream headset, and we have a version of Firefox Reality in that store, mm -hmm. as well as their uh, the ones where you take your phone and you stick it in the viewer. Mm -hmm. um, and technically, our code should run on that kind as well, but we don't officially support it. So then I can use in VR... I will find Firefox on the wall and yep. uh, just go to Firefox. I can browse to the web, right? Yep. You can load up Facebook. You can read the New York Times. And you can also go to a, a page that has VR content, press the Enter VR button, and now you have this immersive experience. Now, because it's so difficult to find VR content, because it's still very early, the startup page in Firefox Reality actually is a curated selection of stuff that we have found on the web, you know, good VR experiences for the web. So, cool. And we're constantly updating that. At least we're trying to get to a cadence of about once a week. We're going to have some new things up there. So it's and, and if you are listening to this, you're a web VR developer or just a web developer thinking of doing VR, let me know. Um, we have a page where you can submit your content. We can work with you to help improve it, uh, you know, do performance tuning, improve the experience. Uh, we just we want people to make great VR stuff on the web. Yeah, but uh, we are almost in metaverse, you know. Now, now we are. <laughs> <laughs> we are. <laughs> Pretty close. We have this thing called Hubs, which sort of started as an experiment and now it's becoming very popular. It's a VR chat. You create a chat room. Uh, it's a VR world. You send a link to your friends. 
and they can join that same room, and you can talk to each other with your voice. You have little cute robot avatars. Um, and you can now paste in, like, YouTube links or animated GIFs or PDFs, and you can all view or interact with that media together. And, and, and this, you don't have to install anything. It's just the web. And the Hubs is an app inside uh, Mozilla VR, Mozilla VR running... Uh, f sorry, Firefox, uh, Firefox VR running in Oculus, right? Um, it can run inside Oculus, but you can go to it from any web browser. Like okay. You can be on your desktop running IE. Well, I don't know if we support IE, but Safari <laughs> or Edge or Chrome or, of course, Firefox. Um, go to this link, and you now have a 3D view on your 2D screen. You could then send that link to somebody on a phone, and they will have, and we support touch events, and you can still interact and talk. It's just not immersive, but you can still move around through the environment, and then you can send that link to somebody who has an Oculus Go. They bring that link up in on the Go, either through Oculus's own browser or through ours, and you're dropped into the environment. One of the key parts of the web is that you can build an experience which is responsive to any device, any screen size, any browser, any form factor. So you can be in 2D or 3D and still interact with all of your friends. That's really the vision of Hubs. Mm -hmm. And you don't have, it's not even an app, you just go to hubs.mozilla.com and create a room and you now have a link that you can share with everybody. And, you know, be social, have fun. So send silly gifts to your friends. No, it can be useful. So I'm thinking about I'm um, right after so Airhex TV. This is like monthly question and answer show. I mm -hmm. do uh, live streaming, so could be an idea to create a hub for it and see what happens. You know. Oh yeah, that would be fun. We use it for our weekly stand-up meetings where we just you know we're telling everybody on the team because a lot of our team is actually remote. Uh, probably less than half of Mozilla is in California. The rest. We are either regional offices or work from home around the world. Mm -hmm. So having a VR, you know, conference room essentially is is really valuable. So we we definitely dog food this. We use it every week. So it really remembers me the Wonderland project. Yes, yeah, I remember that. I I wanted Sun to continue that. I guess it it just didn't make sense for the kind of market Sun was in. But they had there were some great ideas there. Mm -hmm. Project Wonderland and Darkstar, you know. Wonder. Oh yeah. This was a gaming, gaming engine. Yep. Um, that's okay. So um, now we learned how to use that. But as a developer, how I can create content, or can I program that, or what's what's the idea? So let's say I have a. So what I should do, or. So underneath, um, there's an API called WebVR, which lets you enter and exit WebVR, get info on the headset. You can use the game pad APIs to get the controllers. And the drawing is done with WebGL. And WebGL is literally bindings to OpenGL on the web. So mm -hmm. it's the same, you're essentially using the same APIs you would from C or on an iPhone with OpenGL ES or desktop. Now, if you've done any 3D graphics programming, you know OpenGL is very low level. Mm -hmm. You're essentially doing a bunch of memory management. Um, unless you're building a game engine, you probably don't want to work at that level. Mm -hmm. What I recommend people do is either start with 3JS, which mm -hmm. is a very popular open source library for 3D. It gives you a scene graph, so you can say, here's my scene, I'm going to add a cube here, I'm going to put a light here, I'm going to add a sphere here and make it rotate. Um, it's a scene graph very similar to the tree structure in a swing uh, scene or JavaFX. Um, and then you, from there, you can start customizing with different geometry, different materials. Um, if you're completely new to 3D and you're not familiar with scenes, then I suggest you start with A-Frame. A-Frame is built on top of 3JS, and it essentially gives you an HTML-like syntax. So you can literally just say a scene, and then inside that element, you put a box and give it some properties for its size, and a cube. And it handles everything about entering VR, handling cross-browser differences, uh, the polyfills for devices that don't have VR support yet. And it just works. So you can, in 60 seconds, have a simple 3D scene that you can enter VR, and it works. Mm -hmm. So I suggest people start with A-Frame, and then you'll move to 3JS, 
And then if you outgrow 3JS, then that's when you start looking at either 3D game engines like Unity or uh, Unreal, and they support WebVR exports. Or Amazon has a new product called um, Sumerian, mm-hmm. which has a nice web-based editor, and you can bring in your 3D assets, add your sounds, write code, and publish to the web. Actually, so, a web, web assembly can, could also play a role, right? Yeah, so more and more of these uh, are using WebAssembly, which, if, if you haven't heard of WebAssembly before, it's um, it's an as- essentially an assembly language that works on the web. So it's not specific to any processor, but it is much faster than JavaScript could ever be. There are certain things JavaScript the language does, like uh, dynamic allocation and balance checking, and you know things just inherent to the language. Um, that will always be a little slower, the things that just can't be optimized away. WebAssembly is basically the output of a compiler. And it's just that it's instead of being for a particular computer chip, it's for browsers. And so you can compile C code, C++ code, Rust code, and a lot of people have started doing that, where they took their existing C++ game engine that they've tweaked and made really fast over a decade, uh, compile that to WebAssembly, and you now have this essentially blob of code which can run really fast, and then you can write JavaScript which talks to it. Mm-hmm. And that's another, it's, it's another case where it was a standard that had been in research for years, and then in a period of about one year, it basically became supported everywhere. Um, and so for things like 3D graphics, for machine learning in the browser, for computer vision in the browser, all of that stuff becomes many times faster thanks to WebAssembly. Actually, it was one of the Mozilla projects, right? It was this Asm, I think, right? Yeah, it started as Asm. It actually yeah. started out of one of the game groups. We're like, what could we do to make games run faster? Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be really useful for all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what's funny is, so what, what, what browser becomes over time is like another JVM, not JVM, a VM, right? So um, Yeah, it's really the virtual machine for the whole world now. Um, exactly. because controlled by one company. Yeah, because now the uh, VR we'll be talking about is no more about markup. It's like getting a low-level access to the hardware, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool. What are the killer killer use cases? So I think it is hard to find some for VR, but there are lots for AR, right? It's uh, it's still really early days. It's like saying what was the killer app for um, the iPhone when it first launched. Like mm-hmm. the first apps were, um, you know, people created little lightsabers or soundboards. You know, there were a lot of novelty apps, mm-hmm. um, and it took a while before we found things like Instagram or uh, Instapaper or Snapchat, where we, we started figuring out what mobile was really good at. It's going to be the same for VR. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of early experiments. People are trying 360 videos, um, generally like 5 to 10 minutes. People are trying uh, games, you know, were the obvious first start. Where I think long-term, the potential is in things like training. Uh, Walmart just bought... 20,000 Oculus Go's that they're going to use to train their employees so they could simulate, like, this is what you're going to do if there's a snowstorm or there's a terrorist attack or it's Black Friday and you have people lined up at the door. There's going to be use for use it in uh, schools, um, you know, experience like walking on Mars or dinosaurs, you know, things you couldn't do in real life. There's going to be uses in medical uh, applications. I mean, it's it's going to eventually be like, you know, what do you use a smartphone for? Well, these days, everything. <laughs> but it took us 10 to 15 years to get to that point. I think it's going to be the same with VR. Mm-hmm. We just don't know what the killer app is yet. And our goal is to help the world find that by lowering the barrier to friction, let people create stuff easily, share it easily, iterate easily. Exactly what I think the game changer is going to be, you know, uh, the hardware. If the uh, AR will feel like just sunglasses and not like, you know, a, a huge device yeah. on, on, on your head. We're, 
Then you could Air create is like, a couple years. Yeah. Air is still a couple years out. Like the the Hololens was four thousand a couple years ago. The Magic Leap just came out. It's two thousand. It still feels like a developer uh, product, something for people to use to prototype. It's an amazing at that, but it's not ready for mass market. For VR, the Oculus Go is two hundred dollars. It's completely standalone. Like mm -hmm. you buy it, you put it on your head, you're in VR. That I think the Go is like the the tipping point for VR to go into mainstream. Mm -hmm. And we're probably a couple years out for the AR equivalent, but it's coming. It will come. But if you imagine, if you get you know just sunglasses like experience, or very thin and just you know subtle, and then yep. we are we are able to, for instance, to inject information on the glasses or direct mm -hmm. to the iris. Then we have our killer use case because uh, that is a really useful if you walk around and you see additional information if you like. So yeah, it's coming. It, it we may be five years before we get the consumer version, but it's going to happen, yeah. and it's it's going to be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. So perfect. So now, Josh, where people can find you? Do you have any references? Um. So right now, I'm on Twitter at mm -hmm. Josh Marnacci. Mm -hmm. um, the easiest email to type is josh at josh.earth mm -hmm. uh, it still all redirects to the same thing mm -hmm. um, and I started a Twitch stream I try to at least once a week uh, I talk about the latest VR news and then do some coding in fact tomorrow I've on my Twitch channel I'm going to show how to build a lightsaber in VR cool. so that will be fun so those are the three places people should get a hold of me okay so thank you a lot, and uh, let's see what happens in five years. So I would like to invite you then <laughs> <laughs> with our glasses, yes. and we'll meet in the hub. Yep. <laughs> yeah, in five years, we're basically going to have, like, Iron Man suits. Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> this would be fun. Okay, then, see you then with Iron Man suit, right? Absolutely. Thanks. Bye.